Hello folks, this is Champs at the Lit with Mark and Max. I'm Max, and as always I'm joined by my good friend Mark. I'm Mark, how's it going? Uh, today for episode uh, 5 of our podcast we're going to be talking about the book uh, The End of the Myth by uh, Greg Grandin. And, uh, Mark, do you want to give us a brief sort of synopsis slash who is Greg Grandin? Yeah, so Greg Grandin is a professor a press a professor of history at Yale. Um, it seems like most of his work focuses on Latin America. He's done a fair amount of work on the relationship between the U.S. and Latin America. He's even like reported live, um, I think, in Guatemala, and written uh, a fair amount about like the various revolutions that have happened there. Uh, both, you know, sort of what happened on the ground, and then also what the U.S. role was in those revolutions. Uh, so this book won the Pulitzer Prize in 2020, and um, the end of the myth is, I think, the myth of uh, sort of endless frontier, uh, and he gives a pretty much chronological history, starting with the French and Indian War and ending with Donald Trump, of the concept of the frontier, which encompasses both kind of the idea that we can always expand westward and also encompasses um, the idea of limitlessness and then as we then kind of reach and establish some limits it moves into the u.s foreign policy abroad and our involvement in wars and revolutions and various things uh, as well as our border protections at home so as the frontier gets established as a border what what is permeable you know, with like free trade, and then what do we try to stop, which is, you know, trying to stop humans from coming over the border. I think it's also also relevant to note that he is uh, generally a critic of American foreign policy, yeah, and definitely. is generally sim- like more sympathetic to left-leaning Latin American politicians, or, you know, fully left or socialist Latin American politicians. And so, um, yeah, I, I think his... The way he approaches this material, uh, you know, is affected by his political lens. Yeah, yeah, I think you definitely get that from from the book. Um, and also, uh, something that I was sort of thinking about is, um, I feel like this is the second book that we've talked about. Um, that's really a uh, it's a book sort of of the Trump era. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Um, so the Topeka school, which we talked about, uh, by Ben Lerner, um, you know, it's very much placed, even though, you know, most of, most of that book takes place, um, earlier, like in the nineties, in the late nineties, there's a way in which that book is, uh, I feel like it's very much sort of a product of like the, the politics at the time, sort of the Trump politics at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's like, uh. At the end of the book, there's a scene with the detention protest over um, the, uh, the sort of separation of families and uh, the, the migrant detentions that were happening during the Trump presidency. And there's a similar way in which, you know, I don't know if Grandin, you know, maybe this was something that was sort of brewing in his head for a longer period of time, but it's definitely written um, in a sort of more modern context. I mean, not just because he brings you all the way up to the present day and tries to make connections between the sort of Trump era border policies and immigration policies and what what was, you know, what happened in the past. Yeah, yeah. The In, in particular, Trump's focus on a border wall seems to inform mm-hmm. the 
um, yeah, yeah of, I mean, like, I was sort of wondering, like, focus on. there's a lot, there's a lot of like border stuff and mm-hmm. a fair amount of discussion about like physical barriers on the border and that kind of thing. So I don't know if that's a, you know, that's not necessarily a critique of the book, but it's interesting because, you know, um, I guess that's a way in which it's more of a sort of popular history book rather than, you know, a yeah. book that's written, you know, just for historians. Um, you know, it's meant to reach a sort of wider audience and connect for the reader to, you know, what's happening in the present day, at least. Yeah. You know, the present day for when Grandin was writing it. Yeah, I actually thought that he was a journalist for a while while mm-hmm. I was reading it. Uh, maybe most of the time that I was reading it. Mm-hmm. Partly because he doesn't ever seem to cite his own research. Um like it doesn't, it doesn't read as though it's a historian who's done original research and is talking about his own work. You know, sometimes when a scholar writes a book, it is sort of a summary of a bunch of years of their own research. Yeah. But he does a lot of citation of other people's work. And I remember thinking at some point, like, man, I wonder how these people feel, you know, that he's like taking, you know, like eight other scholars and sort of combining their life's work into a single book. And I was like, ah, you know, journalists kind of do that sort of thing. Uh, but... Um, I don't, I don't think it's a problem, but I think it's, it's a little bit surprising that he, he draws on a lot of other people's work, and it's not as clear to me what his contribution to the literature on this stuff is. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there's a sort of, there's a strain of scholarship, which is, um, you know, it is more about rather than you know, what's, what's the sort of original thing that you're discovering that other historians haven't noticed, and it's more bringing together... Um, you know, bringing together the work of uh, multiple historians, but, you know, framing it in a um, kind of unique perspective. All right. So what do we what do we want to talk about next month? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I want to just sort of go through the um, book sort of chronology roughly chronologically book. and point out just whatever facts or anecdotes were interesting, at least to me, the main value of the book or the main thing I got out of it was when he goes through history that we all know pretty well through this focus on the frontier and even on like racism to some degree that you get a new perspective on events or people that you thought you knew um and i mean in in most cases people look worse than than uh, you expected uh, like everybody turns out to be racist and uh turns out most american foreign policy is like you know badly motivated uh and so i think i think there are a lot of like important facts that contextualize parts of our modern society that people should know about like i said he starts off with kind of the french and indian war and one of the things he talks about is that the um the prevention of western expansion by the early settlers was a major sticking point between the colonies and great britain that great britain wanted to restrict that movement the um, colonies wanted to be able to keep moving west and settlers kept, you know, violating that policy and moving west. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, and this is something that happens over the course of the book that I'm curious about is that because he's using this particular lens, he will highlight the issue that he's focusing on as being really important. And it wasn't really clear to me. So he's able to cite various instances where Jefferson or other people who, you know, work on the Declaration of Independence or on the Constitution talk about how important it was that they be able to move west. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I don't really know where that stacks up in their list of grievances, right? Like, like we usually talk about they cared about taxes and right. representation and I don't know, like how, how important was westward expansion? I do think he makes a pretty convincing case that it was, if not the motivating factor, definitely a motivating factor. Yeah. Um, 
and part of it was just that you know a lot of the a lot of the founders you know take washington for example they had um not not just sort of like ideological like i guess commitment to this idea of you know expanding expanding out what at the time was you know the colonial states westward um but they had you know a real sort of financial stakes in sort mm. of westward expansion um and this was true of a lot of the sort of founding generation and also the generation after that um you get into you know andrew jackson andrew jackson is like one generation after the founding and for a lot of the you know sort of crucial political figures of the day they have um you know real sort of material financial i mean in particular land interest in um being able to expand uh westward um Yeah, and their, I mean, even their, like, vision for the country, mm-hmm. you know, involves taking over the continent Yeah, pretty yeah, early yeah. on. And I think yeah, we know... very early on, like, John Quincy Adams has this idea of, um, who's the son of, like, uh, John Adams and, you know, is a president. Um, so the sort of, I mean, he's not, he's not of the, he's not one of the founders, right? He's the mm-hmm. next generation, but I think historians kind of think of him as the last president because he's the president before Jackson, so he's the last president of that sort of founding um, generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, early on, he has this idea of a continental, you know, coast-to-coast empire for the United States, a sort of empire of liberty. Yeah. Um, which is yeah. pretty, you know, I think the other thing that's hard to, I guess sort of hard to get your head around, um, speaking in the 21st century, is uh, the extent to which so much of what we think of as the United States, you know, was not, controlled in any in any way by you know the colonists and then the uh the early you know the original 13 american states right um you know what we're talking about when we initially talk about the west you know we're talking about uh kentucky we're talking about tennessee yeah uh we're talking about yeah you know mississippi um you know that's the south you know that's the southwest at the time yeah and they i mean like like I was surprised at how vehement Jefferson seemed to be about, you know, expanding westward. Mm -hmm. And he, at various points, even... And a lot of people do this. This was surprising to me again. I mean, yeah, I I suppose I'm revealing my naivete here, but that they would just explicitly call for genocide. They're like, the Indians will be wiped out, or we should wipe out the Indians. We should take over. This is like our, you know, destiny or whatever it is. I don't know. It's just striking. Like he, I actually saw a, a, a dollar today, one of the new, you know, dollar coins that mm-hmm. has Jefferson on it. And he's like one of the, you know, sort of like looked up to founding, uh, you know, I, idealized uh, founders. And um, I don't know, not, not obvious to me that he should deserve that, um, that lionization. Um, so I guess, could you, could you paint there? sort of a picture for how, like, what Andrew Jackson represented in terms of this kind of like turning point. Um, there's this sense in which he's like an important moment or represents an important moment, a kind of like shift in power. Yeah. I mean, like I said, he, he's the, um, he's really the first president that's outside of that, like founding generation, you know, Jefferson or Washington, Jefferson, Madison, um, and even Adams, well, Adams senior and even Adams younger. Um, and he's also, you know, I guess you could say, I mean, George Washington wasn't educated. He had basically no formal education. Um, 
but there's, there's sort of a sense in which, um, you know, Jackson is sort of the least couth individual, <laughs> you know, to ascend to the presidency. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he made a, he made a name for himself and made a, uh, I guess, livelihood for himself being like a frontier politician. You know, he was one of the like early settlers of Tennessee. That's how he first began in politics was, uh, as like a representative for at the time, I think the, like the territorial government of Tennessee mm-hmm. and then eventually the like initial like congressional representation for Tennessee. Um, and again, you know, at the time that we're talking about, um, you know, that's the West of the United States, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, those, right. are, those sort of states, Ohio. Um, yeah, he, he genuinely is yeah, frontier. Right, right. Um, I mean, he was born in North Carolina, but, um, you know, he moved out, you know, to the sort of frontier pretty early, I think, like in his 20s. Um, and the other thing, you know, that he sort of exemplifies is um, this idea of like the Indian fighter, I guess you could say which, uh, you know, runs through a lot of, I guess, American, I don't know what you want to call it, like American politics. Like there, there were a lot of politicians of the day that sort of made a name for themselves as, you know, more or less Indian fighters. Um, and then sort of parlayed that into political or economic power. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jackson's maybe the, you know, he's the uh, best sort of example of that, you know, reaching the highest office in the land. Um, and also, you know, he, the other thing he's well known for is, uh, you know, sort of military valor, right? You know, he was a war hero in the, uh, the, uh, the war of 1812. Although you should note that the, the battle he's most well known for is the victory at New Orleans, right? And that actually took place after the peace treaty had been signed. So it really had no bearing on the outcome of the war, but it became the sort of seminal moment for like, even though the war was, I don't know, essentially a draw or maybe even a loss for the United States <laughs> uh, in terms of, like, the damage, you know, sustained by the country. But, you know, his sort of victory at the very tail end of the war, you know, after the treaty had been signed, was this sort of, like, galvanizing moment for the country. Um, and then, yeah, he, he takes that into, you know, elective office. I think he becomes president in what I think it's like nineteen or nineteen eighteen twenty four I believe something mm-hmm. like that, um, and yeah, there's this idea. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's two sides to them. There, there's the there's the side in which he's you know he's out and out a racist. He's a slave owner. He's one of the yeah. few few presidents known to have, for example. Um, he ran a slave coffle, which was like, you know. Yeah, Grandin was saying he was the only president that, mm-hmm. you know, personally had driven slave coffles. Like, right. he, yeah, had right. like taken. And I think part of that is like also driven that. Them from place to place right. to sell them. Right. And that speaks to sort of the, you know, what was happening with slavery at the time. Like, slavery had basically been, like, the slave trade had been abolished. Right. But what that essentially meant was that there developed an internal slave trade in which slaves from, like, Virginia, Maryland, um, the sort of older southern states were transported into what became the sort of deep south, Mississippi, Alabama, those sort mm. of states. Um, and yeah, he's, you know, he's definitely the president that was, you know, the president slash one of the political leaders that was most, you know, intimately involved in, um, you know, in the slave trade and slavery. Yeah. And his, you know, career as an Indian fighter, there's, you know, any number of, you know, pretty gruesome details about, 
you know, what he did in terms of, um, you know, he's known for um, fighting the uh, Creeks, for example, and um, signing a pretty infamous treaty with them, which basically, you know, took more or less all of the Creek land from um, the sort of uh, southern, south, south, what we think of now as like the southeastern United States, mm-hmm. um, away from the Creek Indians. Um, and yeah. You know, so there's that side of him, right? But there is also, you know, there's also a sort of democratization that comes along with Jackson's presidency, right? Right. Um, I mean, you should be clear that it's it's definitely white. It's definitely male. Um, But if you, you know, if you do sort of think about the longer history of, like, I guess, suffrage in the United Mm -hmm. States, you might say, you know, it's pretty limited at the time of, like, the founding of the nation. You know, I think... Right, you know, senators are not elected directly. Um, there are lots of states that have property qualifications for who can vote. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, overall, his presidency does represent a sort of moment in which um, there is a wider sort of sharing of the democracy. Um, yeah. But it also comes along with, you know, Indian removal, disenfranchisement of African-Americans, of um, African-Americans that used to be able to vote, you know, in states but we're basically disenfranchised along with the, the sort of enfranchisement of whites. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about how is this sort of like the moment when like poor white people get power. Um, yeah. And it, you know, the, yeah, that like, it also sort of prefigures the sort of uh, alliance between the frontier and the South. I mean, in this case, the frontier and the South are similar places, Yeah, uh, yeah. but mean, over, over the course the of the same book, place in a lot of ways. yeah, it, there, you know, over and over again, you get the sort of out west uh, states on the frontier who ally themselves with the South. Um, you know, like the, the the Western states will agree to support slavery or uh, to oppose civil rights or whatever it is, in exchange for the Southern states supporting their kind of you know drive to expand and uh, achieve statehood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, other, the other kind of thing that he briefly notes that I thought was interesting is that this is kind of the point in time when soldiers are started to see be seen as a segment of society that should be respected, um, which I haven't really thought about before. But, uh, you know, if you, if you read history uh, from, say, 300, 400 years ago, soldiers are generally, you know, not volunteers. And they're often seen as kind of like the dregs of society. They're not that far from like a criminal element. Like, you know, they're like sailors. Like, you don't want soldiers around. Uh, they just mean trouble. And obviously, at some point in history, there was a transition to where, like, now, you know, veterans board first on planes and they get benefits. Like, we all, you know, give them a lot of respect for their service to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, Grant doesn't really go into this in any detail, but he kind of offhandedly mentions that, it's during the Andrew Jackson presidency, which makes sense because he was a general uh, mm. that, that, and, you know, I think the demographic of soldiers overlaps a lot with the demographic of his supporters, um, where they sort of, yeah, it, it's, it's established in society that being a veteran is something that means that you deserve additional respect. Yeah, I, I think this, this comes up a bit more once you get to sort of the Mexican-American war. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, there's this whole sort of generation of 
politicians and even presidents that basically built a career for themselves off the Mexican-American War. Yeah, so the um, kind of next phase in history, as I've thought about it, is sort of the expansion westward that is more closer to what we think about as the West. Um, right. And the frontier with early settlers and then, you know, kind of moves into like a Wild West cowboy territory. Right. Um, and I, he had some interesting ideas on this, uh, one of which was that the definitions of certain freedoms like property were like, like property was defined in such a way that only white settlers would have rights. Um, right. So like like if you if you are if there's, you know, quote unquote, virgin territory, the person that owns it after they show up is the first person who like stakes a claim to it formally and then improves it. Right. An improvement, of course, is going to be defined in like a Western sense of like you plow the land and you plant specific things. And so the Native Americans who had been living on this land don't actually own the property. Uh, by this definition and so there's the idea that like you know property is this fundamental right in the like Lockean Jeffersonian sense of, of of the term but it's interesting to think that like one of these most fundamental founding principles of the country was literally designed just to disenfranchise Native Americans I mean yeah you're sort of skipping over like the Mexican-American war stuff um... <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> that's, so that's fine I mean, it's it's important to understand, like, you know, the Mexican-American War is important, right? Because basically what we think of as much of the sort of west of the United States was, uh, you know, essentially conquered from Mexico during the Mexican-American War. Um, right. And that's, that's really what opens, I guess you could say, the sort of floodgates. Like, I mean, there was already settlement, like in California, even. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously in Texas, you know, Texas, you know, became a, you know, independent state and slash country, you know, for a time before the Mexican-American War, um, before it was incorporated in, into the United States. Um, but yeah, so so much of what we think of as like the, the modern day Western United States was, um, you know, conquered during that war. I think what you're sort of getting into is more sort of the Homestead Act era, right? So like there, there's the Homestead Act, right? And that, that mm-hmm. does like sort of distribute land to a large... I guess, section of the American public, right? He says it's like mm-hmm. 3 million acres to 400,000 households. Um, and a lot of that was seen as, you know, sort of a reward for fighting for, like, the Union. This is, like, after the Civil War. Um, but I guess a sort of theme of this um, sort of expansion westward is that even though a lot of the a lot of this land is sort of made available to the public at, like, cheap to free, um, often, like, the best parts of the land end up like in the hands of like business interest or like you know whatever the sort of powerful interest of the day are but i guess that doesn't really get to uh, you know your idea or his idea of like um you know sort of the idea of the individual right yeah moving westward um, yeah there's this whole notion that yeah i mean like the ethos of the west has a lot to do with yeah like kind of rugged individualism and freedom mm-hmm. and there's this idea that yeah like there's no government out there uh there's just empty land and you just go out and you sell the land and you're like i mean it's almost like sort of hobbesian state of nature which i think as american at least i i as an american take for granted as like a thing that sort of existed in our history but like as a european right there was no idea that like well 
you know, there like this used to be empty land, and then we came like showed up and settled it because like there were just there've always been people there. Um, right. Like there's no idea that like well France, you know, we came and settled France and had this nice state of nature until somebody decided to form a government. It's like well <laughs> there were just always people there, and there was always some form of government or you know tribal association. Whereas America, there is this idea that there is like you know, yeah, California was empty, right. and then we showed up and we all took over our own little plots of land, and then over time as we got denser like we had to come up with a government or something uh which is kind of like i think it's a pretty pervasive narrative but it is a false narrative yeah yeah the sort of idea that like you know the people the settlers they proceed you know they go ahead of the government basically and it's only after they're sort of established and like have their uh you know claim to the land that you know belatedly government sort of um comes up you know in the rear i guess Right. There's, he, you know, early on, he also, he draws this interesting, I, I thought it was interesting sort of contrast between, um, I mean, this is more, this is earlier in the sort of the nation's history, but the sort of mm. contrast between what was happening in um, Latin America in like the newly freed, like Spanish um, states, um, like, you know, Gran Colombia, things like that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Mexico, um, that there was sort of a... Um, I guess there was more, I guess, respect for like borders and like territorial integrity of other states. Like it's not that, um, you know, these newly, you know, these newly freed, you know, what used to be Spanish possessions, you know, fought plenty mm-hmm. um, and like dispute it, you know, where should the boundary be between our countries? Uh, but unlike in the United States, um, there was more of a more of a sense of you know there is no kind of like unclaimed land or unsettled land right. you know somebody somebody populated. has a plan to it somebody has a claim to it um and you know there's there's a certain extent of which we need or sense in which we need to sort of respect that and the united states that doesn't you know that doesn't really develop i mean there, there is a early on there's sort of this idea of like you know the indian nations are treated as like essentially they're foreign nations right like in early treaties, like uh, Washington and like Henry Knox, um, there is a bit more sort of deference paid to, um, you know, what are the bounds of these, um, you know, what are called like basically Indian nations. Yeah. Um, well, even later on, that's like, I mean, sort of complicated legal questions come up and the response is that like native nations are conquered nations. And so right. they don't get rights because when somebody has beaten you in a war, you don't have rights. Like you just have to deal with whatever the victor decides. Right. But yeah, the contrast with the Latin America is, is quite interesting. And he even talks about how in, in um, Africa, there's a similar situation where post uh, uh, you know, sort of revolution after uh, the various yeah, countries have gotten their de- colonial freedom. Decolonization in like the fifties and sixties. Yeah. That they sort of come together and say like, look, you know, for our own good, we should all just like take the borders as given. Otherwise, we're going to have a big problem. Like you can't really start from scratch anymore and try to draw the lines in a way that is makes a ton of sense. Um, it is like safer and, you know, yeah, I guess maybe just safer <laughs> for everybody involved to avoid war. It's more peaceable if we just accept the boundaries as they are. You know, the the other interesting idea, which is something that I don't know if I'd heard before or not. I mean, may, maybe, but. There is this concept of the safety valve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he has a whole chapter basically about this, um, and this is, 
I guess this this is sort of like uh, both before the Mexican-American War and then after the Mexican-American War. Um, but it's this idea that develops or that seems to sort of gain purchase with, I guess, what you think of the, the American public or like, you know, the intelligentsia of the day mm-hmm. that, you know, the Western United States can serve as a, you know, safety valve for the nation. And this is at the time that like steam power is just being developed, you know, um, steamboats are still like a pretty new thing. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like important because it's like the like, you know, it's like the, you know, it's like the technology of the day that seems, you know, really modern. And, you know, there's this like impetus for like, you know, speed and, you know, wanting to yeah. go fast at all costs. And they're also like, you know, they're extremely deadly, right? Like people are dying, you know, in droves on, uh, right. you know, steamboats on the Mississippi. I mean, and it is this sort extent. of like perfect, in a way, it's like this perfect metaphor for the way in which the country is, you know, spreading outward to the West. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it is interesting the extent to which technology informs our own, like, image of things, right? That, like, like we still use a lot of steam analogies for our own, like, brains. Like, I need to, you know, let off some steam, or I just really need to vent right now. Um, oh, yeah, I say that, that all the time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and those are, yeah, those are concepts that, you know, originate with this mental model of a steam engine. Right. Uh, I, I, was, I was laughing because I think he kind of, he gets yeah, a he may be pedantic about this. He like spent pages <laughs> and pages pulling out like every quote from every like, right. and some of them are just random. Like in an 1855 town hall and yeah. like the small town in New Hampshire, this guy said that the steam engine blah blah. blah. It's yeah. like okay, like I we get the idea. It's like safety safety valve. You know, I think that's um, that that in a way that sort of gets to maybe a critique of the book is the <laughs> sort of the framing of it. Like it's. To me, it's all like very interesting history, and I think he lays it out in a pretty compelling way. Um, without, um, I mean, like you were saying at the beginning, you know, he has a left wing bent, I guess, but um, you know, for the most part, it's you know, these are facts, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but there is a way in which the sort of the framing of the book. The framing of the idea of like the frontier or like uh you know the west of the country or um you know what it meant to people mm-hmm. um there's a way in which you know by like pulling out quotes like you were saying about the sort of s- the steamboat analogy or you know this you know the the safety valve analogy mm-hmm. you know by pulling out all these quotes it makes it seem like yeah you know freaking everybody was talking about this and you know this was like definitely the zeitgeist of the day you know to right. sort of there, there's a point where he out. tries to address this and he basically says look like yes not everybody in the country like thought about the frontier a lot like the frontier <laughs> wasn't like a an important sort of mindset for everyone but he argues that it was important for you know policymakers and thinkers of the nation and that um like it played a big enough role in politics and in just like actually what people like there was a significant enough chunk of people who were aware of the possibility of like going west um, and enough people did do that that uh you know he argues it was still sort of as important as he makes it out to be but yeah. i think yeah I, I think that would be a you know a perfectly reasonable line of critique um i mean it's interesting this idea of the escape valve reminds me a little bit of like australia right that it was this like penal colony that you just send all the bad people to. Sure. Um, I mean, I that's think, what it was. Yeah. And I think, I think, <laughs> I mean, I think, I think people, people often compare Australia and the United States, right? Because we're both, you know, settler democracies, right? Or, sure. you know, set, settler states. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, there's a definite sort of comparison to be made there. Yeah, but, but I think sorry. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, I I think this just is broadly happens a lot in in you know colonization. Like like yeah, the, the United States played this role for Britain for a while, right? If you got into trouble, or if you were the third son and didn't get any inheritance or whatever it was, you you know go over to Bermuda or wherever, right? Like you you go west, you cross the ocean and try to seek your fortune or escape from whatever problems you just caused in sure. in the old world. And I think, I think, you know, we as Americans don't think of our expansion West as being similar to colonization, I think. Like, mm. when I think of, you know, colonization, what, uh, you know, the English did in India or something. Yeah, um, or sort of the cutting up of Africa. What you the know, that's, that's French sort of did what in Algeria. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, uh, like, in my mind, that is a separate sort of thing from what we did uh, in you know nevada or wherever yeah um, but I, really I this, but, but really it's also... not that different and this is a way in which it's similar right that yeah. like they the the way that those operations functioned for the people back home in the sort of mainland was very similar right it provides this escape valve it provides mm-hmm. you know like important capital and the possibility for economic growth in a way um that wouldn't have been possible without it yeah yeah um and this is i think this is a good way to transition into before we sorry before we get to sort of the spanish-american war um we should at least talk a little bit about this this idea that was percolating at the time the um the turner thesis mm-hmm. um and this is this idea um frederick jackson turner he was a you know at the time he was a little known historian from a professor in wisconsin and uh, I'll, I'll read the quote. Um, this this is the way Grandin says is you know this is sort of a good summation of what his what his thesis was all about. And it's the existence of an area of free land, its continual recession, and the advance of American settlement westward explain American development. And essentially, what what Turner argued is that you know at the time that he's writing in the late nineteenth um, century, um, the West has been settled. You know, there is no more frontier. Um, it can no longer sort of function as a safety valve for the nation. And, he, and he, you know, he connects it to, you know, what he thought was, um, you know, the, the way in which having a frontier, having a sort of Western frontier had made the United States unique um, and had sort of contributed to the um, sort of expansion of political equality sort of what Mark was talking about earlier, this idea of like, you know, the, the settlers sort of precede the state, um, you know, they to develop, uh, you know, there's this idea of like both a frontier mutualism, where, you know, the people on the frontier are helping themselves out, you know, helping each other out, but mm-hmm. also sort of frontier individualism that you're allowed to, you know, sort of pick up stakes and, you know, go sort of do your own thing. And it's only after you've sort of established yourself that the state arrives. Um, and the other sort of, you know, interesting things about the about the Turner thesis and about Frederick Jackson Turner as a historian is that, um, I guess, what, what, what Grandin draws this contrast between what Turner was talking about and a sort of older theory of history, this uh, germ theory of history. Mm. And it's this idea of the sort of romantic decline of, <laughs> I mean, it's essentially like the primitive Aryan. It's, it's basically like, you know, you go from like, uh, like the Teutonics in Germany to like the Anglo-Saxons in England 
to the settlers from England in the United States. And it's like all of like the ideas around like liberty and like, uh, I guess, you know, private property, um, you know, this, they all sort of stem from this like older sort of, you know, primitive individual mm-hmm. who had his liberty and had his rights. Um, and, you know, Turner's thesis is, uh, I guess it's more sort of uniquely American. It's more like, you know, now, you know, that, that stuff didn't really matter. You know, what made, you know, America unique was just its, you know, sort of unique uh, place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it had this, you know, unsettled frontier, you know, what he, you know, what people thought of as an unsettled frontier. And also that it, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't particularly like elitist. Um, and it also wasn't overtly racist. He draws a contrast between, you know, what um, uh, Turner's talking about and the sort of more overtly racist rhetoric of the day, which, you know, sort of exemplified by, like, Teddy Roosevelt and the idea of, like, the winning of the West and mm-hmm. the sort of celebration of, like, the expansion of the United States westward because it brings civilization and... Um, you know, the sort of suppression of the native population. Yeah. And he's he's kind of the first thinker, it seems like, who focuses on the frontier as an important aspect of Americanness, right? Like, if you think yeah. of, like, other earlier thinkers of Americanness focus on, you know, democracy or, sure, like, you know, European heritage or various other things. Right. Um, and he's the one who, who identifies. Cause, I mean, it, it seems like everyone... Uh, who's come after him agrees that he's right in that the frontier is a very important part of American history. And there is now just disagreement over uh, sort of how it is important, what role it plays. I think, you know, in a lot of ways uh, people have now inverted his idea that we're exceptional and really great because we can expand West and maybe that's actually been problematic for us. Um, But I, I mean, I also think it's interesting how sort of important he became, right? He became kind of this leading figure in American history. He goes and teaches at Harvard. Yeah. Uh, a whole bunch of presidents then, you know, both the Roosevelts went to Harvard and right. you know, studied under him to some degree. Right. His lectures and papers are all published and people read them. And, you know, so like all the, all the like important Americans of his time are aware of his ideas. Uh, and so his ideas become really important in the political discourse and how... I mean, yeah, but how how both the Roosevelts think about America. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving at a blazing pace. Uh, Yes. On to the Spanish-American War. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we we go faster through some of this stuff. Um, So, okay. Look, you you know more about this stuff than I do. Uh, I don't know about the American. No, why not, why did the Spanish American War start? I mean, it was basically a pretext, right? Like we didn't like Spain. We wanted Spain out of there. Uh, was 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 that it? We just wanted to like control our own sphere of influence. I mean, that, that's hard to say. I think um, people you know people at the time sort of saw the war in the context of like you know fighting Spanish tyranny essentially, mm-hmm. um, which was like you know like a well-documented, uh, <laughs> you know, the Spanish were ty- tyrannical and, um, you know, in Cuba and the Philippines. Um, sure. but yeah, there, there's a sense like in Cuba, you know, 
you know, in terms of the Spanish-American War, it's like the, the Cuban revolutionaries have been fighting, I don't know, for like a couple of decades. And then we just come in, you know, at the very, very end of the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but because, you know, we're the sort of larger power, we sort of end up, you know, controlling the way things work out in terms of the peace process, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, as to why, like, it sort of happens at this point in history, I think that's, uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, I will say that there's a sort of longer history, like, just turkey, term, in terms of talking about Cuba, you know, there have been interest um, in, like, taking over Cuba in some way or incorporating it as a new state. You know, during the um, antebellum period, there was this idea that, well, you know, you can expand slavery south because it's the same exact, you know, conditions or you know, even better conditions for, you know, certain mm. uh, sort of slave-produced products. There's also this idea of, like, filibusters, you know, the word, the term filibuster comes from these filibustering expeditions, which were essentially, like, Americans that went to uh, various places in Latin America. I think most famously in Nicaragua, there was an American that basically set himself up as, like, the king of Nicaragua, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there's also the, you know, going back to, like, the Monroe Doctrine, this idea that, you know, the this hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere is our hemisphere. Right. Um, you know, even though at the time that was really, or that, that was sort of built on, like, British supremacy of the seas. <laughs> sure. Like, it yeah. was sort of the, the British that were the ones that were keeping out other European powers from the sort of Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um but we sort of, you know, glommed onto that and said, yeah, you know, and also <laughs> it's it's our sphere of influence. So, you know, please, European powers don't interfere. Right. Um, but, you know, you know, why does it happen at this particular time? I think um, the conditions, I guess, are just right, right? That um, there is this, like, native insurgency, definitely mm-hmm. in Cuba, um, right? That's been going on for a long time. There's this incident with the main, which, you know, pretty definitively seems now the sort of more or less, I guess, definitive conclusion is that, you know, the explosion of the Maine, which was a ship that was um, uh, docked in Cuba um, and used as a sort of pretext for the declaration of war, um, that it was certainly, I think it was like a boiler, you know, accident yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, it was standard You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a bomb accident, that was planted right. by the Spanish. And I think the other thing that I guess you need to remember or sort of think about is that this is coming you know this is post-civil war post-reconstruction hmm. uh, and it ends up being this very i guess in a way convenient vehicle for sort of reconciling or more fully reconciling the north and yeah. the south i mean granda makes this argument explicitly but he's not the he's not the first one to make this argument right um i think he's drawing on a pretty well-established sort of historical tradition tradition here that um one of the one of the important aspects of the spanish-american war is that it brings together sort of the uh the north and the south the the union and the former confederacy there's even this quote that i pulled out um (laughs) it says um so this was in like a journal at the time the atlantic constitution it says yes sir i fought with stonewall and faced the fight with lee but if this nation goes to war, make one more gun for me. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so and, it's just this, yeah, this the, opportunity. The, right. The, the the Southerners are all signed up because they want to go fight a war. Mm-hmm. The Northerners are all excited that the Southerners, you know, want to help them with mm-hmm. their war. Yeah. Great. And I think this also ties into, you know, ideas that were floating around at the time. I mean, there's there's Turner's thesis, 
Um, and there's the sort of, um, you know, there's the sort of, I guess, more militant. Uh, militant's not, not the right word necessarily, but, you know, represented by Teddy Roosevelt, this idea that it's, like, important for the United States to be, <laughs> to, like, have conflicts to fight. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, this is, you know, it's tied into the fact that, like we were talking about earlier, that, you know, the frontier has closed, or, you know, people are sort of thinking about the frontier as being closed. Yeah. So you need new frontiers. Um, and where do you find those frontiers? Well, you find them elsewhere in the world. Um, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt becomes a big booster of the Spanish-American War, right? He uh, gets together Rough Riders, you know, things like that. Um, and it's all sort of in the service of reinvigorating, like, American manhood to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah. I, I So I don't know if, if it was, at least I don't recall it being explicitly laid out by anyone that, like, we're out of frontier, ergo, let's go fight a war. Um, but this, yeah, this seems to be the, like, exegesis that, um, you know, wars fill a, a void that used to be filled by the frontier. Um, right. And, yeah, it does, I think there is, yeah, this notion of kind of manhood and war. Um, and, I mean, it's one of these kind of classic questions. There's the, there's the William James essay or speech, right, like the moral equivalent of war where he's like, war is awful, but war does serve really important functions in that, you know, it provides unity, it gives people a purpose, it motivates people, it, you know, organizes and directs energy. And so we need, like, we do not want to go to war. We don't want war to fulfill this function, but we do need something to fulfill this function. What can it be? Um, and I think it's, it's easy to forget for how long in human history it was taken as a given that these were, like, good aspects of war that, you know, like we celebrated the martial virtues in a way that yeah. we don't anymore. Yeah. They sort of like revitalize, like having a war, you know, every once in a while sort of revitalizes the nation. And I guess, you know, in a way it's sort of like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it sifts out the wheat from the chaff sort of thing. Yeah. And that, you know, young men want to have some big adventure. They want to go off and prove themselves and gain glory through war. Like the idea these days that someone would say, I want to join the army for glory. It would be very, very strange. Right. Whereas it used to be, that was a pretty normal thing to do. Um, yeah, I think I think the, the, the change in the way we think about war is is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, it isn't directly addressed in the book, but comes up in the way that you get to hear people talk about war. Well, w w one of the ways I thought about this is that he he quotes from these letters of soldiers writing home from Cuba and the Philippines and other places mm -hmm. where they just casually talk about, you know, the families they've murdered there. Um, and they're writing home to like their girlfriends and their own families. And it's just a totally normal thing for them to go around killing people who, you know, it all probably don't seem to be combatants. Uh, they're just killing them for fun. They're having a good time doing it. They're like mutilating their bodies and writing yeah. their friends about it. Uh, and I think, I think, yeah, it sounds terrible, but I have to remind myself that probably that is the norm and we are the anomaly that like to us, that is not an acceptable thing to do. Sure. Or I don't know. I don't know if we're even the anomaly. You know, if you, you know, more recently, if you sort of think about the rhetoric around, um, you know, calling Muslim ragheads, you know, things like that, the abuses at uh, Abu Ghraib, you know, treatment of uh, prisoners in extremely, de you know, dehuman 
Um, right, but that's that's sort of my I, point, right? Right, Abu Ghraib to us is a scandal. People are <laughs> outraged. Sure. Whereas, like in their era, they're literally writing their mom home, and being like, "Guess what I did today," sure. uh, and everybody's fine with it. Sure. And so I think, well, I think, yeah, I mean, similarly to how, like, you know, for us, the fact that like civilians die in wars is like very troubling in Syria or Yemen or wherever. Whereas, like, 200 years ago, the idea that civilians would be killed, they were like, yeah, yeah, like, that, it's war. It's, you know, I don't know. You kill people. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Well, I don't know if you're wrong, but, you know. Um, I mean, I think you def- you definitely have a point, and that's sort of the, the argument that Grandin makes, is that, you know, in particular for Southerners, um, that the, the Spanish-American War was a way in which they could, you know, sort of show their loyalty to the country, their valor, but also sort of like get an excuse to like go to a foreign country and essentially put down people of color. Um, And there's a lot of, like you were saying in the letters, there's a lot of, you know, casual use of the N word um, and sort of just, you know, glomming together, you know, you know, whether they're Haitians or Nicaraguans or Filipinos, you know, they're all, you know, M words to, um, you know. Yeah. And then they'll talk about how like, oh yeah, like I ran a plantation. I know how to deal with these guys, you know, like I, I kill them here or send me there, I'll be really good at it kind of thing. Right. And I mean, he ties this into uh, this, uh, the reemergence or the resurgence of the um, KKK and the, um, yeah. in the sort of 1910s, um, you know, in particular during Wilson's presidency. I mean, that's one of the, I think um, at least when I, when I took, um, I guess like American history, you know, like AP American history in high school, mm-hmm. you know, I think even at the time, I mean, I mean, I definitely think, you know, there's, there was some recognition of, like, you know, Wilson <laughs> maybe wasn't nah. such a great guy, right? Nah. But I think for the most part, Not what you even. sort of learn is, like, the 14 points, yep. you know, the his sort of vision for, like, a peaceful world for the... It wasn't the UN, but what was it, like, the predecessor for the UN? I was UN? just trying to remember that. Something Nations. Uh... Yeah. The something of nations, <laughs> you know, he was like a good yeah. internationalist, and then and then and then, and then entering World War One, right? Uh, right, that's the other kind of like notable thing. But yeah, you don't talk about the fact right. that he was a racist, that he purged, uh, yeah. the federal I mean, civil service yeah, he, of black people, he resegregated people, the bureaucracy, um, resegregated DC, mm-hmm. uh, and just like the stuff he writes is like really awful, right? Um, yeah, and, and you know, I think um, historically speaking, you know, Wilson in a way he was the first Southerner. I believe to have been elected president like since the Civil War, mm. um, you know, he was a Virginian, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he sort of represents a sort of culmination of like you know post Spanish American War, the sort of reunification of the the blue and the gray, the Union and the Confederacy. Um, you know, now we got a Southern president. Now, Grandin in his book, he sort of jumps around, like we were talking about earlier, like after his. You know, he has a, he sort of ends a chapter talking about World War One, Wilson, and then he jumps back to talking about, you know, Mexico and the sort of Mexican-American border. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he, he does say that, like, border controls were implemented for the first time under Wilson, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that is one of those, again, sort of as a modern human, you take as granted that you can't just cross borders. Um, when for most of human history, you obviously just could. Um, and that, 
Yeah, it, I, it, it seems like he says Wilson wanted border control because of concerns about the war. And then outside of that, he actually was not in favor of border control. But that is still when it gets implemented. Um, and yeah. the, the, the yeah, motivation and I, is mostly to, like, keep America pure and white. Right. Like, like the, 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 the motives for border control are not really national security so much as they are, at least the way Grandin seems to tell it, like just out and out racism. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he connects this to, you know, like we were talking about earlier, there's the resurgence of the um, the clan, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, ends up being big in Texas. Um, there's the Texas Rangers, which are essentially used as like a, I don't know, like a terror force in a way, or, you know. Yeah, I mean, he know. says like in any other country, they would clearly just be called a death squad. Right. And, uh, and like Mark was saying, you know, this all sort of builds up. Um, it's in 1924, there's the Comprehensive Immigration Act. And this is the act that it creates the border patrol and it also um, creates the sort of quota system for immigration mm-hmm. um and this is the act that you know um, it cuts down on immigration and base i think totally basically from from asia and from eastern europe um but you know for the purposes of grandin's book or the the interesting thing to note is that it exempts mexico um because there's still this need and this is there's this sort of ongoing theme, right? There's this, this need still for like Mexican labor, basically, mm-hmm. um, that they're the one sort of group of individuals that's exempted from what's, you know, um, what's an overtly, you know, racist act. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, um, yeah, the other, the other relationship here with the border and, and what we've talked about is that, um, I mean, like you say, there's the kind of the resurgence of the KKK after the Spanish-American War um, and or after it ends. And Grandin talks about how there seems to be this cycle of when there isn't a foreign war happening, that you get a bunch of these often veterans who mm-hmm. um, spend time at the border uh, killing people, basically. Uh, I mean, trying, trying to patrol the border and, uh, you know, being violent in uh, an area that is sort of a liminal space between countries where they're allowed to be violent since they no longer have a war to go do that in foreign yeah. countries. Yeah, liminal space. That's a good. That's a good sort of term for it. Yeah, it's a sort of you know paramilitary groups essentially um, that end up getting you know the ranks often get filled by um, you know veterans. Yeah, and, and, and they have a pretty symbiotic relationship with the Border Patrol itself, which was, you know, started by a lot of guys with similar backgrounds and similar beliefs about race in the country. Um, and so, you know, even though they're unofficial, they seem to, you know, they get along with the officials and they can maybe do things the officials would get in trouble for or something. Although even the officials don't seem to get in very much trouble. But yeah, he, he just has all these examples um and it, it's remarkable how early it starts and how consistent it is to what we see on the border now, right? Of veterans patrolling the border, killing people, um, shooting over the border, trying to do whatever they can to stop the migrants from coming. Um, and yeah, from it's like from the early 20th century until today, it's the same activities by more or less the same people, just the wars have changed, right? You know, it's Vietnam vets to vets from Nicaragua to now Iraq and Afghanistan vets. Uh, all you know joining up and hanging out in the desert together and taking their rifles and trying to yeah shoot kids crossing the border all right where do we want to go from here i don't know um we haven't talked at all about (laughs) fdr um 
Yeah, I mean, what I are don't we know. we've got, we've got FDR and then modern stuff. Yeah. So one of the interesting things, and something that I don't know um, that much about, but um, the sort of role of the Mexican, Mexican Revolution in uh, 1917. Mm. Um, so Granda talks about this, that basically uh, the Mexican Revolution had set up what he calls it's the the world's first social democratic constitution you know there were guarantees for things like education health care decent wages the right to unionize and basically like social rights and these are like things that we in the united states we tend to think about as like these are sort of like new deal rights right um but this is happening in mexico in 1917 and there's this interesting sort of symbiosis between um the mexican government and like fdr's government and like officials in fdr's mm -hmm. government like cabinet officials sort of looking at um mexico as an example um he yeah. points to this uh, uh president at the time elected in 1934 lasaro cardenas who um instituted land reform um in mexico uh, he redistributed 45 million acres to, he says, 810,000 families. And members of FDR's cabinet were like, you know, they were like inspired by, you know, what was happening in Mexico. And we're yeah. thinking, you know, yes, that's that's sort of what we need for our country. Yeah. And, um, then, and then vice versa, there, there are instances of, yeah, the Mexican officials, you know, sort of liking the New Deal programs. And, yeah, they had a, they had a very, like, mutual mutually ad admiring relationship. Right. And I think this gets this sort of gets to, you know, going way back, the the sort of permeability of the border between the United States and uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Mexican labor is like it's very important, like throughout the 21st century, into yeah. the, into or the 20th century into the 21st century. Um, and like we talked about with the um, Immigration Act of 1924, you know, Mexican laborers, they're the one group that's exempted from the quota system. And then during World War II, at like the height of World War II, there's the Brazero program, which lets in, it's like 5 million Mexican laborers um, with uh, work permits. Um, and there's this, uh, there's this relationship between the United States and Mexico where until the 1960s, I mean, even beyond that, but... There's the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, and that's what repeals the um, quota system and, and finally puts, like, a quota system on Mexican immigration. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, up until that point, you know, the, the border is more or less totally open, and there's this relationship between, you know, Mexican labor and, like, in the United States, like, ag like agricultural interests and, like, the need for, like, cheap labor to... Um, you know, work on the farms of America, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that uh, oftentimes the people who are strongly opposed to that labor or migration are the people who, to some degree, seem to rely on it. Uh, although maybe this gets back to the kind of Jacksonian poor whites versus rich whites thing um, that, you know, people feel like they're competing with Mexican labor and so they don't, they don't uh, want it. Yeah, I mean, there's also... I don't know, you know, Grandin talks about this, that, you know, in a way there's a, you know, there's a constituency that, you know, really wants open borders, more or less because they want, like, cheap labor. Right. Um, and that's at odds with the sort of, you know, common man, I guess you could say, right, or, you know, individuals that feel like, you know, 
cheap Mexican labor, you know, has a has a negative impact on you know wages for American workers. Yeah, uh, and I think I mean honestly, some for some people it's not really an economic. You know, it could be against their economic interests, and they're just mostly concerned about like letting people who don't look like them into the country, right? Like it just turns yeah. into a racial issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, I mean, so the other thing um, that I think is interesting about um, FDR's thoughts on the frontier is that he basically says, like, there are limits. Uh, he seems to be the first yeah, president right. who is like, limitlessness yeah. is over. We've reached limits. We're not expanding anymore. We got to focus on ourselves. We got to, like, turn inwards and focus on things here. And there's this kind of idea that, like, you know, maybe the, the uh, what do we call that, escape valve, the, the emergency valve, mm-hmm. um, that maybe it was a bad thing because it, it prevented the necessary pressure from building up internally that, like, the political pressure that would have required some, like, sort of social reforms to like take care of people um there's there's this idea that europe developed social democracy and you know robust safety nets and benefits and, and things like that uh, because there's nowhere for people to go and so uh, they agitate to get rights uh where they're living instead of going off somewhere else to try to form their own their own uh you know version of society and so fdr yeah, this- basically says we've reached that point and now we gotta like we need social democracy here. And he tries to implement that through the new deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, sort of jumping back in time, one of the things that struck me or one of the questions that I'm curious about myself is, um, you know, in 1848, there were um, like uh, worldwide or I don't know, I guess Europe wide, you'd say there were all these, um, you know, revolutions, right? Like popular revolutions, the Paris commune, things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't a similar sort of uprising in the United States. And, he, you know, Grandin sort of poses the question of, you know, why was that? Um, and, you know, his answer is that, well, um, you know, for American workers, if they were, like, dissatisfied, you know, with the conditions that they were laboring under or, you know, whatever else, you know, at the time they could just go west, you know, pick up sticks and go west, right. start anew, um, which wasn't available to, you know, European workers. And he says that, you know, he says that's the sort of roots of, you know, what becomes sort of social democracy in Europe. Um, and that that doesn't be, you know, because essentially because of the frontier, because of the availability of land out west, um, that doesn't develop to the same extent in the United States. And it's really only with, you know, FDR's presidency that there becomes more sort of sustained focus on, um, you know, developing social rights. And like you were saying, um I think there is this sort of, they do, there's this new idea of sort of the limits of growth. Like, um, you know, they point to like, for example, wasteful farming practices, right? That like, because land was like so cheap and so available, the sort of farming practice of the United States was basically, you know, it was done with like little regard for the sustainability of the practice, which is eventually what led to like the Dust Bowl. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You just you 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 work through the top several layers of nutrients in the soil. You don't replenish it, and it's fine because there's always new land. Yeah. Um, But like by the time FDR's presidency, or you know during the height of the Great Depression, the the Dust Bowl, there are these sort of really real, uh, like tangible signs of like the limits to growth and the limits of uh, you know, you know expansion. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's a part of me that wanted the book to end here. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I think I think up until this point, his thesis, I don't know. Well, 
I guess I, I have another question about whether or not he has a thesis. But up until this point, <laughs> the the narrative thread is pretty cohesive because it's all about expansion and America's attempts to expand and what that means, whether you know through the frontier or with other countries. You get to FDR and he's sort of like, we're done, we can't expand anymore. Um, and then after that, it gets a lot more nebulous to understand what's going on. I think I think the the border stuff is hard for me to like fold neatly into this narrative thread because like again, yeah, like border security is not the same thing as like frontier expansion, sort of freedom in the West, safety valve stuff. Um, and then also because I think yeah, af after World War II, our relationship to borders and the frontier no longer follows these same patterns in the same way. I mean, one of the threads that stays throughout is like the relationship between Mexico and the United States and, you know, how we treat the border. But yeah, it is a difference. <laughs> you know, once you get, you know, past or two or past the Spanish-American War, you know, you're less talking about, you know, the settlement of the Western United States and you're now talking about, you know, well, what, what exactly are you talking about? It could really be, you know, any expression of, you know, United States power abroad, basically. It seems to be, you know, Grant's take on things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I want to talk about, I don't know, I guess move more into my critiques, um, which is that, yeah, I don't think that like Vietnam and Nicaragua are like that, obviously related to this stuff. You know, the, the Vietnam and Nicaragua stuff, it's like the ways in which um, sort of the desire to have like sort of new frontiers for the United States abroad, you know, come, come to sort of come back, come back around to sort of bite the country. I think there there is a certain like sort of consensus, right? You know, Granted talks about this, and I think this is pretty well documented that there there's a sort of consensus that emerges after World War II um, between Republicans and Democrats. I mean, they're definitely like the naysayers, or you know, the I guess you know the sort of more libertarian uh, strains of thinking that are also emerging around this time. And this is where like ideas like the American Century um, from uh, uh, Henry Luce. Um, sort of come about like ideas around uh u.s internationalism you have figures like uh rockefeller who says that uh or you know rockefeller is looking for new frontiers for the american people yeah uses... but like like there's not the idea that like vietnam is part of that frontier right like, well, well i think it's not the... the idea that we're there like so so free trade i can i can get sure. right that like okay, we, you know, we're not expanding in terms of acquiring new territory, but we want to expand in terms of acquiring new markets. And so we need to open up, you know, sort of new areas. And that, like, our, our expansion is now just, like, capitalist market access thing, and we accomplish that through free trade. Fine. Right. Uh, like, Vietnam is just, like, we're worried that the communists are going to take over the world, and, like, this is the first domino. We need to go stop it. We're not there for economic reasons. We're not there because we want to take over the territory and settle it. It doesn't, it doesn't have any relationship to, like, the earlier frontier settlement escape valve, any of the stuff that he's been talking about for the rest of the book. Like, sure, some of the people there use an analogy of cowboys and Indians. That's, like, to me, it feels like a pretty far cry from, like, a genuine connection to the earlier stuff. Yeah. I, I guess I, I don't know that I totally disagree that, you know, it's not exactly a one-to-one -one connection. But I do think... I don't know, like, like Vietnam is sort of like uh, an ending point. You know, the, yeah, the United States has sort of like, it's, it's, the United States has sort of like stretched itself out so far, you know, right. to these frontiers in, like in the rest of the world. the illusion of American exceptionalism, right? Like, yes, we're not yeah. invincible. Yeah, we can't just like expand indefinitely and take over the whole world. I get that there's like an element of that, 
uh, I don't know. It's just like the whole experience in Vietnam, the reason we got into Vietnam just seems totally different to me than like the, all the frontier stuff. Sure. I mean, maybe. I mean, but it also does. I mean, the, the, the other, one of the other sort of arguments that Grant makes throughout the book is that, um, you know, there's a connection between sort of militarism abroad and like extremism at home. Um, you know, ML, MLK at the end of his life, he was developing a sort of critique of the Vietnam War that basically, um, you know, the bombs that were dropping in Vietnam end up, you know, coming back, you know, coming back home to roost. And I, I get it, you know, maybe that doesn't... This, was, <laughs> that this doesn't... is another one of my quibbles. He, he sort of, he, he, he acts as though King has a like theory of the frontier and then cherry picks a, like it, it reads as though he did a control f in all of king's speeches to find where he used the word frontier and then puts those quotes in like one page of the book and is like see king also thought frontiers were bad or whatever and like it, it's not clear to me that the the frontier as a concept was a meaningful part of how uh martin luther king thought about america or the world um, sure well i'll just i'll just add that i mean the the other thing that he talks about is you know the you know, Vietnam vets that came back and, you know, often, like, established, you know, like, basically vigilante groups, like, along the border, for example. Um, yeah, that that whole thing is, like, I think I think it's a really interesting idea. It seems like it would just, it's, like, just a separate thing, though. Mm -hmm. like, well, well, like, the idea of, like, border patrol and how that relates to American foreign wars. So, so and, what like, about, like, all the stuff, like, with like NAFTA and stuff like that, like that, do you feel like that doesn't fit with the whole like you know frontier slash border slash? You know? No, I mean, like I said earlier, I think I think there's a there's a pretty good argument for saying like we no longer expand physically, we expand through like free trade, right? Um, and sort of capitalism access to markets. But he doesn't spend very much time on that. He talks a little bit about NAFTA. He talks a little about uh, the TPP. But um, I mean, speaking as someone who spends a lot more time thinking about economics than I do about American history. Um, like th there's a lot more to write about if that's where he wanted to take the focus of the argument. Um, but he doesn't. And I, I think this gets back to like what, when I was trying to prep for this podcast, I realized I was really unclear on was like what his thesis is. Um, like he presents lots of people's ideas and lots of people's research. And I think it's really interesting. And I, you know, got a lot out of reading about these facts and stuff. But when I got to the end and I was like, okay, like what's, what's the argument of the book? What's like the takeaway? What conclusion are we supposed to draw? Um, I don't really know. And I think it's because he goes in so many different directions. Like, I guess, like what's you his know, contribution to the literature aside from just like a very readable history, like selective, like readings in American history with a particular theme. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have a contribution. Um, I mean, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Like my, my assumption is that I'm missing something. Someone else sees something. I just really don't see it. <laughs> But part of what makes it unique is the scope. Um, sure. You know, like you know, like you were saying, you could end the book at uh, um, after the Spanish-American War and say, well, you know, this was sort of the new frontier. Um, you know, the sort of domestic frontier had been closed at this point, and now there's a sort of new frontier, which is international. Um, and just say, you know, and that's my book. Um, but it seems to me, you know, he was, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he wanted to write, you know, from the beginning to the end. And I think, I think it gets back to, um, you know, what I was saying at the beginning, that 
to me, and I don't know that this is a critique necessarily, but it does seem like a very Trump era book, mm. right? That, you know, as a historian, but also as a kind of public intellectual, you know, he's seeing what's happening um, with the sort of Trump presidency and the sort of rhetoric around that. And he's thinking to himself, well, you know, as a historian, I want, you know, sort of explain to the American public what I see as, as, you know, the sort of broader connections. Like, you know, Trump and like his rhetoric didn't just like pop out of nowhere. You know, the the connections to, um, you know, going back to uh, the Immigration Act, to Operation Wetback, to um, just the idea of, like, having a frontier, or, like, you know, during the Mexican-American War, like, uh, whether we want to incorporate, you know, Mexicans into the United States, whether, you know... Um, you know, people opposed the war because they thought it would be sort of an amalgamation of races, and that's why we shouldn't go to war. Um, so to me, that's what he's doing is, you know, he's thinking, and, you know, maybe this is a, I mean, I think this is a struggle that a lot of historians that write about, you know, sort of more contemporary, I mean, a lot of the book takes place, you know, or, you know, most of the book takes place in sort of more well-established, I guess you could say, history, or, you know, it's longer mm-hmm. ago, right? So we have more time to sort of think about it and think about it in context. But he's really writing, you know, I think that the reason he wrote the book, or this is the way it seems to me, is, is you know, because what, he's, what he saw was happening, you know, in the current day. So, you know, maybe that's sort of why he loses the thread, because he wants to, uh, you know, sort of make the connections to the current day. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe to me it's like there are two books happening here. One's about <laughs> frontier and expansion. Yeah. And then the second one, which is the one that relates more to Donald Trump, is the like border patrol. Yeah. And and I mean, he uh, even sort know, of does that, right? Like, you know, there's like I chapters think, where he like bounces back, right? To like what's yeah. happening with the, you know, Mexican-American yeah. relations and the border. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe his, you know, his scholarship is, is more about the frontier and then he shoehorns the border patrol stuff in because he feels like... He needed to write this book because of the Trump era. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know why it happened the way it did. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't I don't regret any of it. Uh, I would you know like take I, I yeah I'm, I'm glad I read all of it. Um, but I think I would have liked for him to have a clearer thesis um, so that when I walk away from the book, as opposed to just a sort of a jumble of interesting facts, I had like a you know sort of a, a, a key argument that I I took away from it. Sure. But all, all all that to say, I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was very good. It was very interesting, and I, I learned a lot. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna just mention, like, what about like at the end, this idea of like border zones, the sort of expansion of like, uh, you know, it's like a hundred. He says it's like a hundred miles in from the border is considered um, like border mm. territory. Well, you know. I actually don't remember that. So it's, it's at the very end in the in the epilogue. You know, part of his argument is that, like, you know, for for most of American history, the border just wasn't, you know, it was a permeable thing, right? People sure. were crossing yeah. back and forth. We didn't really think of it. I mean, it was obviously like there there was, you know, going back to, um, you know, post the Mexican American War, there was like an established border, right? Um, but you know, in the more recent decades, really really in the more recent decades it's only um you know more so with like the reagan presidency that you get a sort of more 
um, solidification of the border um, and sort of a militarization of the border. Sure. Um, I don't know. Um, he says, now the blood meridian is everywhere. <laughs> All I guess right. I didn't realize that's what the, do you know that the, like, I guess the, the blood meridian is supposed to be, it's like the 99th meridian. It's like when the, the plains go, um, is it the prairie meets the desiccated plains. Yeah. Uh, all right. I, yeah, I have another hour-long call in 10 minutes, and i got to help Sylvie with some dinner prep. Okay. We'll <laughs> all right. Well, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Goodbye, guys. Yep. Bye-bye. See ya. Hey, folks. Max here. Thanks for listening to Champs at the Lit. Thanks to Wes Braver for creating our theme music. In our next episode, we will be talking about The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. The Buried Giant is a kind of Arthurian legend about memory, loss, and the search to find missing loved ones. Please join us for that discussion, and thanks again for listening.